Well, good afternoon. Welcome to Zoe Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you if you're new or visiting. Honestly, we don't have a lot of people at our church, so I can tell when you're new. Um, but I was talking to someone today. looking at each other during service, and I never met him until today, so that's my bad. But he did say, you know, sometimes people don't want to be, you know, called out as new. And I shared this a few weeks ago. I remember I was at a church in California, and I'd visited a couple times, and every Sunday, someone would get up and say, if you're new, why don't you stand up and introduce yourself? But I guess the week before, when I'd come the first time, uh, that person forgot or something. So I wasn't technically new. I'd been there twice, right? So he's looking at me because he knows it's me, and I'm just looking at him, you know? And he's like, if you're new, and I'm like, well, I'm not technically new. He's like, if you're newer, and I just never sit up, and I never went back either. Um, but that was awkward, so uh, we don't want to do that with you guys. Even last time I shared this, one guy actually wanted to, he was like raising his hand, but I never saw him again. So hopefully he comes back. We'll see. I'll meet him that time. Anyway, if you're new, Zoe's a simple church, okay? We're not the flashiest church of all time or even the second flashiest. We are a church that just goes through the Bible. Basically, that's all we really do. And that's our identity, teaching the Word of God as well as we can, going through book by book, chapter by chapter, even verse by verse, sometimes even word by word. Uh, We're not going to do that too in-depth today. We're going to go over an entire chapter. We're not just going to do one word. Um, But we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and you'll see that we're actually looking at a story, a narrative about the beginning of the kingdom of Israel. And we're toward the end. So we're going to be in chapter 28. So you could turn there, 1 Samuel 28. Uh, And we're going to try to make some headway in the narrative, in the plot. If you haven't been here, I think you could figure out what's going on still. But basically what's happening is that 1 Samuel, and we're going to do both 1 and 2 Samuel, but 1 Samuel is the story of the beginning of the kingdom in Israel. They had a first king, and his name was Saul. He was the king that the people wanted. He was taller than everybody. He was a good warrior on paper, but God rejected him. And God chose a man after his own heart to be the king that he wanted, and that was David. Now, we've been with David pretty much since he kind of became the new king. He became the main character. But here in this chapter, we're actually focusing on Saul again. And as a matter of fact, okay, I say this every week, but this might be the craziest chapter in the book so far. And you'll see as we read it. But really, okay, don't focus so much on kind of the strange supernatural stuff, and you'll see what I mean. But this is the last time, really, we see Saul before he dies. This is the the last big event in Saul's life. So don't look so much at the supernatural things. You can look at that, too. But try to focus on the man. Hear his words. See what he does. Let's read 1 Samuel 28, starting in verse 3. We'll read to the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel 28, 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. 
So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is her, uh, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines tomorrow. You and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Verse 20. And Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman said to, uh, came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked an unleavened bread, uh, uh, and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we know that your word is truth, that your word has the power to sanctify us. God, we know that your word is a sharp sword, that it can cut between our hearts and who we are on the outside. Father, I pray, God, that you would use your word today to speak to us, but more than that, to change us. God, I pray that you would bring conviction through your word and maybe also comfort. And God, I pray that you would use this time for our good. God, I really pray that you would build your church during this time. But more importantly than that, God, I pray that you would use your word during this time for your glory. And God, I pray that you would help us to know who we are. God, that in the big scheme of things, we are insignificant. And you are everything. So God, we humble ourselves before you. We look to you, and we place things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. What do you think people will say to you? Or rather, what do you think people will say about you when you're gone? At the end of your life, when you're in the casket, 
What do you think people are going to be saying about who you were, what kind of friend you were, what kind of husband or wife or father or mother or child or friend, whatever? What do you think they would say about you when you're no longer there to hear it? And I heard the story about this guy named Dave. Dave was a comedian, uh, and he was a hilarious guy. That's what everyone said. He was extroverted, kind of the same guy on stage and off stage. Now, Dave, beyond that, he had some health problems. He had diabetes, type 1 diabetes. And if you know anything about diabetes, type 1 diabetes is actually way worse. Okay, It's the kind of diabetes that you're born with. And if you have it, you basically have to watch your blood sugar constantly. You have to give yourself insulin shots. It's a very difficult, difficult thing to have. Dave was good at a lot of things. But taking care of himself and monitoring his diabetes was not one of them. So one day, his best friend Blake, also a comedian, got a call. Hey, Dave's in a coma. Dave's probably in his 30s. They hung out all the time, so the suddenness of it was jarring. And basically what happened is exactly what you think could have happened He just wasn't watching his blood sugar. He ate some stuff, and his blood sugar spiked so high that his body just shut down. His kidneys stopped working, and he had just done a show. So Blake, he goes to the hospital, and he sees this guy who just a few days earlier was telling jokes and the life of the party, and now he's laying in a hospital bed, barely clinging to life. After three weeks of trying everything and nothing working, his family finally said, okay, I guess we'll take him off of life support. So Blake, he reached out to their mutual friends, and he said, hey, this is the situation with Dave, if you haven't heard yet. Why don't you guys come over? We'll remember Dave together. We'll grieve together. And he said 50-some-odd people came over to his house, and they were kind of just waiting to hear the official news. And then they saw it on Facebook, because it's the 21st century. Someone logged into Dave's account, and they said, RIP Dave. It was Facebook official. Their friend was gone. And the interesting thing, too, about it being kind of the modern-day is that all these comments started getting posted underneath that Facebook post. People, like all his, he had thousands of friends on Facebook, acquaintances. They started writing things to him, sharing memories that no one else had ever heard, saying things that they never shared when he was still around. Blake just typed, love you, man, or love you, dude, something like that. But it was sad because he realized when he typed that that he had never actually said that in real life. And now it's too late. It can be jarring how quickly things can just end. Because, honestly, it's easy for us to live as if it'll all just keep going on forever, right? Why else do we put off important conversations? Why else do we procrastinate so much? Why do we wait until January 1st to get our lives together as if December doesn't even matter? The objective reality is that life doesn't actually last that long. I mean, how many of your great-great-grandparents are still alive right now? You know, Billy Graham, he lived a pretty long life, 99 years. And they asked him at the end of his life, what was the most surprising thing? What was the most surprising thing in all of your almost century life? And he said, the greatest surprise of life was the brevity of it. So in light of all of this, how do you feel like you're doing? How do you feel like your life is going? Let's just say your life ended today. Okay, I don't want to be too morbid, but let's just say it ended today. What do you think all the people around you would say about you if it was all said and done today? 
this might be uncomfortable, but think more specifically. I mean, really try to think about your own life. Think about what they would say. Would they say, truth be told, he was a great friend. He made time for me. I know he sacrificed for me. It was hard for him sometimes to be there for me. But dozens of times, I can count dozens of times he came through. Or would they say, you know what? I didn't actually know him that well. We kind of lost touch. He was always kind of doing his own thing. Or would they say she was so joyful, I could really see the fruit of God in her life, especially when life was difficult, when her health got worse, when her husband died. She had this different joy that was unlike what most people had. Or would they say, you know, honestly, I hate to speak ill of the dead, but she was kind of a complainer, you know, like it's kind of hard being around her toward the end of her life. Will you be remembered as selfless or self-centered? Will you be remembered as a faithful person or as a flake who didn't show up? Will the people who knew you best look back on your life positively or negatively? See, the thing is, okay, the book of 1 Samuel is reaching its boiling point. Okay, there's only 31 chapters in this book. We're in chapter 28. It's almost over. We're actually in the end game. Last chapter, we actually saw the beginning of the end. Last chapter, David joined the Philistines. Do you remember that? He fled to Philistine territory, and he tricked them so well. They thought that he was on their side. And they're about to launch this invasion into Israel, and they want to bring David with them because they think he will be useful in battle. Now, this battle that the Philistines are going to, we kind of switch sides here. The camera moves. This is the battle, the same battle where Saul is going to die in a couple chapters. So our chapter today tells us of the last major event, like I said, in Saul's life. And the suddenness is kind of jarring because if you've been with us for the past few weeks, it's been back and forth, back and forth, back and forth every chapter. Saul is chasing David. It seems like it's going to go on forever. It's Tom and Jerry or something like that. I mean, David, we talked about this. It's almost like he came to the realization that Saul is never going to stop. But here we see that Saul actually is going to stop because everything Everyone comes to an end. Whether you're a king or just a regular person at Zoe Church on a Sunday afternoon. So let's get into it as we usually do. We'll break down the text into three parts under, under three headings. Um, and I'll just say I got a little fancy today. Okay. If I do say so myself. First point, a desperate seeking. Second, a disturbed spirit. And third, a death sentence. It's not that fancy. Okay. Don't. You know, God will judge me for saying that. Okay, so first, first, a desperate seeking. That's the first thing we see, a desperate seeking, which forces us to ask the question, what do we really want? What do we really want? Verse 3, look at the text. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. Now this happened earlier, but the text is resituating is resituating us. It's reminding us that Samuel's been gone. Okay, keep reading. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Okay, hold that thought more in a minute. Verse four, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem and Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. So basically the setting is war. There's a battle that's going to take place. The lines are being drawn and the Philistines line up on this side and Shunem and the Israelites line up on this side to meet them at Gilboa. Now, Shunem and Gilboa, I mean, I know that they're like our top vacation destinations today. So you know where they are. They're just words on a page to us. We have no idea where these places are. But if you do some geographical research in the past, 
what you find out is that the Philistines are the ones who are the aggressors here. Okay, they're moving into Israelite territory. Shunem is technically in Israel. So they're pushing in. So whether Saul wants this fight or not, he has to take it. Okay, this is him making a stand to keep uh, the Philistines out of Israel. He has to gather all Israel, the text says. So basically, this is an insanely big army, and Saul desperately needs to try to fight it. This is kind of take over your whole country war. Now, understand geopolitically, it makes sense then why this is happening. The Philistines care about Philistine interest and Philistine power, same as countries do today. If you look at the geography even more, there's a trade route that goes through this area, the Via Maris. It goes through the Jezreel Valley, and Gilboa overlooks the Jezreel Valley. So basically, the Philistines, they want to secure this trade route so that they can kind of be connected to the rest of the wider world. But the problem is for Saul, it goes right through the heart of Israel. So really, is, this really is all or nothing. This is you stop them or you don't, and Israel as you knew it is gone forever. Now, there's another interesting thing here. There's a time skip in verse 4. And normally we wouldn't pick this up, but I want to bring this up because kind of these last few chapters are all about the same event from different angles. But in the beginning of chapter 28, which we looked at last week, David, remember, is talking to Achish, right? The king of Gath, right? The Philistine warlord. And Akish is like, come with us to battle. Okay, let's go fight. Um, and David's like, yeah, sure, about that. Yeah, of course. I'll, I'll, you can see what I could do. That was in the past when they were getting ready to go to Israel. But here they're already in Israelite territory. Next chapter, they're going to be back to that conversation again. So the text, what it's doing, it's kind of like a movie, right? If you think about cinematic battles, Helm's Deep or something like that. The focus isn't on the chronology. Okay, the focus is on what are the main characters doing right now. So we looked at what David is doing right now. Now it's time to look at what Saul is doing right now. And really, this preaches. Okay, I'm not just telling you this because I studied it and I didn't want it to go to waste. Huge national events are transpiring, but the Bible chooses not to focus on the bigger picture, the battle, the war, the geopolitics. It focuses in on a couple people. In fact, in this chapter, the Bible wants to focus on the heart of one guy. Verse 5, what, is it, what does it say? When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Seeing the vast army lined up against him, it sets off a bomb in his heart. Inside, he's shaking. Have you ever experienced this kind of paralyzing fear? I haven't. So if you have, tell me about it, and then I can use it as a sermon illustration later. No, I mean, I have been scared before. In fact, even when I was thinking about this, someone asked me, do you get nervous before you preach nowadays? And I was like, of course not. But I kind of do still, even to this day, because there's always new people. And then if they never come back, you're like, well, guess they didn't like that one. You know, that's how it goes. Um, but the reason I know that I do get nervous is because I used to wear an Apple watch. I'm just fancy like that, but I used to wear an Apple watch. And it would tell me that my heart rate was going up and up and up, starting at 130. Right, like James starts doing the call to worship, and it's like 70 beats per minute. Right, he's doing the scripture reading, and it's like 85. Then it's like the last you know, song, and it's like 110. And then he like smiles at me to tell me to come up, and it's like 130. Right? Like, I'm like, I'm acting cool, calm, and collected on the outside, but I'm actually really nervous, according to Steve Jobs. And that's just what I do every week. 
And the funny thing is, you know, the joke is, you know, people are more scared of public speaking. That's what I say, you know, to kind of excuse myself of even dying. Right? The joke is that at a funeral, people would rather be in the casket than be giving the eulogy. But come on, man, that's not real. Like, honestly, I would give a million sermons before, like, getting killed by a Philistine spear. We only say that kind of thing when both are theoretical. In fact, I was reading about this guy named um, Dennis Trudeau. Okay, he was a World War II vet. He was part of the invasion of Normandy. And he was like a really chill guy. And he said even the day before D-Day, okay, the, the invasion, he said that he wasn't scared at all. He wrote a letter to his parents. And he said, don't worry, right? I am flying into Mars. He was, he was a paratrooper. He wasn't on a boat, but he was going to drop from an airplane. But he's like, don't worry, I'm not scared at all. And then they're hanging out on the tarmac the day of, the morning of. He said they would just joke around. They were joking. They said, oh, I can't wait to spend Christmas in Paris. But then he said they got in the plane and they took off and the doors are open for every single plane. There's just a line of planes and they're going to this bloody battlefield. And he said, everyone just stopped talking. Everyone just got freaked out. And he said he actually prayed. He was like, Lord, please let me see one more sunrise. Now, we've all experienced fear. Of course we have. But actually, I think most of us haven't experienced this kind of fear, that tomorrow there's a pretty good chance that I won't be here. That tomorrow I'm going to find out for sure if what I believe is actually true. Believe about the afterlife, believe about God. No more second chances. And so as they say, there are no atheists in foxholes. Dennis Trudeau could only think to pray. Who knows if he's a Christian? Saul, he prays. Verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Saul, he's had a lot of problems with God up to this point. But here, when he looks across the valley, and he sees the Philistines lined up, and he sees his own puny army, he turns to God. He seeks, he knocks, but what does the text say? He seeks, and he doesn't find. He knocks, and the door doesn't open. We're told he tries everything. He tries to dream, probably taste some melatonin or something, but he dreams a dreamless sleep. He consults the Urim, the ancient way in which the priest would inquire of the Lord's will, but it doesn't work, probably because he had all the priests killed earlier. You might remember that. And without Samuel, who passed away, there's no prophet to speak the word of God to him. So he inquires, but the silence is deafening. Now, let me ask you, does this bother you at all? especially for you Christians who have been in church for a while, who know the gospel, who know about Jesus, who know about grace, does this bother you that at the end of Saul's life, he turns to God and God doesn't answer him? I mean, it sounds kind of wrong. I mean, even Jesse, you said it yourself. If you're still alive, then you still have a chance to repent. Isn't God the God of second chances? In fact, I just saw this on like a crosswalk, like devotional online This is literally what it said, quote, Yes, God is the God of second chances. He doesn't give up on us, and he certainly doesn't give up on our loved ones, friends, and acquaintances. So with true hope, let's keep praying, end quote. That's not wrong. So what's going on here in this text? Turn with me to 1 Chronicles. It's just a couple books ahead in the Bible. Keep your place here. But 1 Chronicles chapter 10. 1 Chronicles 10. Excuse me. 
First Chronicles 10. Look at verse 13. You guys there? First Chronicles is right before Second Chronicles, if you're having trouble finding it. Okay, First Chronicles 10, 13. It says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. So it says that the reason why he died is because he, uh, because of a breach of faith, because he did not, because uh, he broke faith. It's kind of hard to understand what it's saying. Another translation here says, uh, and I think it helps us understand, it says that he was basically unfaithful to the Lord. Okay, he was unfaithful to God. And then it says in verse 14, he did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Okay, so look at that again. What does it say exactly? He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Keep that in your mind. You can turn back to 1 Samuel. He did not seek guidance. You say it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. The details matter. Yes, Saul inquired of the Lord. He got down on his knees to pray, I'm sure. But is seeking guidance the same thing as merely praying or inquiring? I mean, what is guidance? What is guidance? Guidance is simply direction. It's direction, being told what to do. So what is the chronicler telling us? Sure, Saul wanted answers. He wanted help. But the truth is, Saul never actually wanted guidance and direction from God. Yes, he wanted the comfort that comes from God, but he didn't want the commands that come from God. He wanted reassurance from God, but he didn't want to truly repent. He wanted to know what would happen, but he didn't actually want to be told what to do. And this has always been Saul's problem. More than once, God told him exactly what to do to the T. And guess what? If Saul didn't want to do it, then Saul didn't do it. So can I ask you another question? And this is an honest question. I'm not trying to be too hard on you. But have you ever wanted to know God's will for your life? Have you ever prayed, God, tell me what to do? What job should I take? What church should I go to? Who should I marry? God, should I have another child? God, should I move to this place? Have you ever prayed, God, just give me a sign or give me some direction or just tell me where I should go? Lead me. I think a lot of us have prayed that before. But now let me ask you, do you actually want to do what God might say, even if it's not what you want to do? Think about that. Do you actually want direction? Or do you want, or do you want reassurance that your plans, your will is going to be done? Because what if God tells you, I don't want you to do that thing? What if God tells you, I want you to be single for the rest of your life? What if God tells you, I want you to stay in this job that you hate? And you say, Jesse, how am I supposed to know how this works? Look at the fruit of your life. Look at the fruit of your life already. Do you have a track record that is eerily similar to Saul's, where you know what God wanted, and you didn't do it? And you say, God didn't speak to me. He always speaks to us in his word. Ephesians 4, 32, forgive as you have been forgiven. God tells every Christian to do that. Have you ever said, no, thanks? I mean, don't you know what this person did to me? Like, they don't deserve it. I'm not going to do it. 
What about love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Ephesians 5.25. How many husbands just say no thanks every day to that commandment? How about use your gifts to serve one another? 1 Peter 4.10. How come every church is 2080? You know what I'm talking about? 20% of people do 80% of the work. Are these people Christian? God, you understand I'm really busy, right? Like I served before at my old church. Turn with me to Mark 10. Mark chapter 10. You can keep your place here. Mark chapter 10, second book of the New Testament. I want to show you something. And this might be a really familiar story. Mark 10, look at verse 17. Mark 10, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark 10, 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. An earnest young man, a ruler of the people we find out in the parallel passage in Luke tells us, or Luke tells us, desperately seeks after something in this passage. And so he inquires of the Lord, what do I got to do? What must I do to have eternal life? And the Lord tells him what to do. Just one thing. He says, go sell everything, trade your treasures on earth for treasures in heaven and follow me prioritize eternity over now. I mean, after all, you want eternal life, right? But verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. In the beginning, he wants this. At the end, he walks away. He doesn't want it. Jesus wasn't telling the rich young ruler to do works in order to earn salvation. Don't misunderstand this text. That's not the point. Jesus instead was asking the question that would reveal what his heart truly wanted. Was the man desperate? I think a little bit, sure, but not enough. Not enough to trade what he had, to pay the necessary cost of what he had to get the thing that he professed to want. He wanted eternal life, but not enough to actually prioritize it over things that are passing away. Now back to 1 Samuel. Back to 1 Samuel. Saul wants to know God's plan. Saul wants to know God's plan. But hear me, okay, I'm kind of splitting hairs here a little bit, but this is important. He wants to know God's plan, but he doesn't want to know God's will. What's the pattern of Saul's life? What did the chronicler tell us? Saul wants God's will to a certain extent, but not enough to actually do it when it doesn't fit with Saul's will. So God doesn't give it. And this leads to the second point. The second point, a disturbed spirit. We saw a desperate seeking, but maybe not desperate enough. Second point, a disturbed spirit. And this pushes us a level deeper. Not just to ask, what do we really want, but to ask, what do we really need? Verse 7. 
And Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now, real quick, a medium is a person, usually a woman, who claims to be able to communicate between the afterlife and this life. Okay, so kind of like how a medium shirt is between a small shirt and a large shirt. That's exactly what it's like. You're in between. That's what a medium is. Saul in his younger years had outlawed mediums and necromancers from the land. He kicked them out according to the Torah. Leviticus 19.31 says, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now you see mediums and necromancers together in the Bible. What is a necromancer? It sounds like something from World of Warcraft or something like that. And the truth is, it's because... It is. Okay, I looked it up. It it actually is part of World of Warcraft. Um, But that comes from reality. Okay, that comes from the ancient pagan world. A necromancer was a person who claimed to be able to reanimate the dead, bring dead people back to life in some way, temporarily, or to communicate with those who are already dead. So Saul got rid of them. He had put these people and these practices out of the land, but apparently there were some operating underground. And his servants immediately find a medium who is in Endor. Now, unfortunately, I got to talk about this because people always want to talk about this. Endor, yes, it is from Star Wars, but it was in the Bible first, okay? Endor, if you don't know what it is, God bless you, okay? Then you should be an elder at this church. But Endor was, you know, the planet from Return of the Jedi where the Ewoks are? Anyway, let's just put that out of our mind. Now, you, I know like 90% of you were thinking that. That's all you know Endor is. But let's talk about Endor in the Bible. And this is actually exegetically significant. Okay, remember the Philistines are at Shunem, Saul is at Gilboa. If you locate Endor Endor on the map, okay, you actually have to leave uh, Gilboa six miles to go closer to where Shunem is. You see what I'm saying? It's only two miles away from Endor. So basically Saul has to go closer to the army that he's scared of in order to find this medium to meet with her. So this is part of the reason why he disguises himself, verse 8. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and the two men with him, and they came to the woman by night, and he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Okay, so part of it is so the Philistines, if they're patrolling, they won't know who he is. The other part is so the medium herself won't know who he is. And you might be wondering, haven't they seen him like online and stuff? There's no internet. There's no cameras. There's no newspapers, no TV. Famous people, you didn't know who they were or what they looked like unless you actually knew them personally. So he takes off his royal robes and he could be anybody. He shows up, verse 9. He asked her to raise up someone. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? She's clever. She knows that this is not kosher. Probably how she survived this long, verse 10. But Saul swore to her, and get this, by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Okay, you can't even make this stuff up the way Saul is. Saul swears on the Lord himself that no punishment will come to her from doing something that the Lord hates. It's like, are you even aware of the words that are coming out of your mouth? But this highlights something about Saul. In fact, I think this is one of the the most important things that Saul ever said in letting us know what Saul's heart and his thought process are like. Saul, don't miss this. Saul truly, until the bitter end, believes in the one true God. He doesn't even think 
to swear on another God's name. He doesn't turn to Baal in his time of distress. He didn't say, well, God's not going to answer, so I'm going to go to Molech. I'm going to go to Dagon. No, even until the very end, even at risk to his life, he's going to seek out a medium so that he could hear from the Lord, hopefully. Even when he's speaking nonsense, God's on his mind. You know, I met with a guy years ago here in Texas, and he's not from Texas like me, but he's also not from America. Um, so he kind of has a different viewpoint on America and, and Texas especially. And he, you know, he moved here as a young man in his 20s. He's in the business of business. And when he moved here, he wanted to start his own business. Um, and he said he met with some people. And the first, like the biggest business advice that he got from people here was, you got to join a church. For the glory of God, no, right? To learn about the Bible, no. To find fellowship, no. Because if you join a church here, they're like, most people here are Christians. So you need to kind of become a Christian and then you can network better and you can grow your business. You know, there are many good things about the Christianized culture of Texas, many things that I appreciate, especially being from California originally. Like in California, when they ask me what I do for work, I'm like, pastoring, you know, like Al Pastor. You know, stuff like that, because you almost don't want to say it, because people are going to react so negatively to you. But here in Texas, I say it, and people are like, yeah, keep fighting the good fight, my man, you know? Like, they really like it. Because so many people here believe in God, the Christian God. So many people, they respect the Bible, right? I remember I had a Bible at Starbucks. I wasn't even reading it, and two people came up to me, and they said, yeah, keep standing up for the word, man. Pretty nice, So many want to keep one nation under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. And there's nothing wrong with these things at all. In fact, they're good. But the problem in everyone believing in God is that many people just stop there. As if it's good enough. But what does James 2.19 say? You believe that God is one, you do well. It's good. Even the demons believe and shudder. Obviously, it's not bad to believe in the one true God, but you have to understand that even the demons believe in the one true God. It's not enough to just not be an atheist. God is after more than just an acknowledgement of his existence. God is after a relationship with us. And that's why one of the scariest passages in the Bible is Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, on that day, on the final day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people will call him Lord. They recognize him by sight. They know about him. They just don't have a relationship with him. And I honestly fear for our church. I fear for every church, but this is the church that I'm called to pastor. I fear that some of you will show up at the end of your life to the judgment And you'll be like, just as I suspected, God is real. You know, you will say, that must be God over there, that glowing figure, whatever. I don't know exactly. I can only imagine. But you'll say, what's up, God? And he'll be like, wait, who are you? Who are you? And you'll say, but God, I wasn't an atheist. God, you were in the background of everything that I did. When Chick-fil-A played worship music in the background, I loved it. I wouldn't even eat unless I said a little prayer. I was taught to do this from my youth. And my fear is that he'll say to some of us, but I never knew you. I didn't know who you were. I mean, God knows everything, but I didn't have a relationship with you. And the truth is, I know a lot of you guys have good theology. You believe in the one true God, and I don't doubt that. But Saul, 
even until the end, he believed only in the one true God. So the question isn't, do you believe in God? The question is, do you have a relationship with God? Do you know God? Is he actually in your life? Do you seek him and not just stuff from him? You know, Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? You know, the truth is, some of us just got to look at our lives. We got to look at the fruit that we're producing. I mean, even to human eyes, does it look like you actually know the God of the universe? Saul, everything he does says no. And so Saul is a walking contradiction. Verse 11. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. Now, this is interesting on a couple of levels quickly. One, can she actually do it? Because so many people who kind of dabble in the supernatural, they're charlatans, they're fakes, fake healings, all of that. So you kind of wonder, can she actually do this thing? Two, Saul, who does he ask for? He asked for Samuel. And this is actually really sad. And I said it before, but Saul to me is one of the most tragic figures in the entire Bible because he's not a cartoonish villain who sets his heart on evil all the time. Okay, he's not an evil man in the way that you might think. He's an everyman. In this series, I've seen so much of Saul in me. And it's sobering. I told someone, I forget a few weeks ago, I was like, dude, I've been studying for Samuel every week in depth. Why do I feel more like Saul than David? Just kidding, I'm more like David. No, I didn't say that. I actually felt more like Saul. Scary. He's completely lost his way, and he goes to the one person he trusts, verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. So maybe she wasn't expecting it. That could be the case. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Verse 13. The king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but people have questions here. She calls Samuel a God. Didn't we just say that there's only one true God, that even the demons know that? Yes, the word here in Hebrew is the word Elohim for God, but it can mean other things. It can mean little G God, false gods. It could even mean supernatural things. Okay, so calling Samuel a God doesn't necessarily mean that he's a deity. It just means that there's something out of this world, like kind of unearthly about him. Verse 14, he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And what is this about? Now the up language, you know, Samuel's coming up out of the earth. It doesn't mean that he's coming from hell or something like that. To the Hebrew mind, death was below, right? The grave is below in the earth. So this is just how they talked. He's coming up from the dead. Keep reading. Verse 15, Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And this is a pattern in Saul's life. He always wants to be told what to do. And not because he's always willing to do it, but because he wants to pass the buck of responsibility. He always wants to say, well, that's what they told me to do. And look how Samuel answers. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? 
The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Samuel tells Saul the most bone-chilling words that you could ever hear from a real spirit from the dead. God is your enemy. This isn't a guess. This is exactly what God wants us all to hear. And you know what the reason is? It's nothing new. He's like, God is your enemy because of all the stuff that you did before. I already told you about this. Saul, he first turned away in disobedience. See, the truth is, the thing is, sin, it doesn't matter if you're Saul or you're us. Sin makes us enemies of God. So put it together. Even if you believe that God is real, you're not automatically in a good relationship with him because if you're a sinner, you're an enemy. And maybe you already know this. Maybe you've heard this a billion times. But I want you to get this. Saul, he had heard these things before, but here he is at his most desperate hour. He is one day, he doesn't quite know it yet, but he's one day away from meeting his maker. All he wants to know is what is the future. He wants some assurance. He wants some help. And what God tells him is you already know. And the truth is you guys already know too. It's possible some of you here, maybe one of you here has never been to church before and a friend invited you, then you don't know. I'm going to tell you right now. But I think 99% of you guys, you know already. You know about sin. You know about God. You know about how sin makes us enemies of God. The most important thing you need to hear about God, about you, about God's will for your life, the most important things you need to hear, God has already told you. You don't need to know more. Turn with me to Luke 16, and then we'll go to the last point, which is the shortest. I'm just letting you know, and then we'll close. Luke 16. This is a... One of the craziest stories in the Bible. Okay, so Luke 16, Luke 16, look at verse 19. I'm just going to read it. Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You know, there's a lot in this passage. 
But you know what happened. You get the story. And did you hear the ending? If you won't hear the word of God right now, the word of God that you already have right here, it doesn't matter if someone were to rise from the grave to speak to you. See, the problem isn't God. If there's a problem, it's us. So the question is, in light of all of that, have you reckoned with, what, with what's most important according to God? Sure, you have, you know, a faith in God in a sense. You have a knowledge of who he is a little bit, but do you have a relationship with him? Do you know him? And even if you say yes with your mouth, what does your life say? And this leads to the third and final point, a death sentence. A death sentence, which urges us toward urgency. It was in 2010. um, I was 23 in 2010. You can do the math. But I was still living in Torrance, where I'm from originally. uh, And I was driving by my old high school. I used to drive by it all the time. And there's a sign in front of the high school where they put, like, events, you know, homecoming, coming up, football game, whatever. Um, But this particular day, and I remember seeing it, all it said was R.I.P. Kevin Zellick. I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, Kevin Zellick was the same class as me. This is a few years after we graduated. And the crazy thing was, Kevin Zellick was, like, my best friend in elementary school. Like, we hung out. I remember, like, I can still remember, like, his dogs, um, like, eating Sloppy Joe's at his house. I don't really like Sloppy Joe's, but good memory. And I saw it, and I was like, what? I tried to find online. It didn't say. You know, his obituary just said he suddenly passed maybe a car accident or something. But Kevin Zellick passed away six years after we graduated high school. And looking back now, I read the obituary again this morning, 11 years ago. 11 years ago. See, the truth is, it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. Tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And yet we live with so little urgency. Verse 19, Samuel has one more thing to say. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me in the grave. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Now, did you notice Samuel does give Saul at the end what he wanted? He gives him a word of prophecy about the future. He tells him what's going to happen. He gives him answers. But it's the last thing that Saul wanted to hear. Verse 20. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day, all night. He collapses. It's a pathetic scene. This man who had, who was supposed to lead Israel in victory, this man who stood head and shoulders above everyone else among his people is cowering on the floor. He is shaken to his very center. And it's not because what Samuel said that God is your enemy. It's not because what Samuel said, God has turned away. It's because of the last thing that Samuel said, that you are going to die. Verse 21, the woman came to Saul and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. So the text is basically saying she's kind of freaking out and wants him to get out of there. Okay, let me give you some food and get out of here. Verse 23, he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house. 
She quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. She put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, and they rose and went away that night. Okay, what do we see here at the very end? There's a lot of detail about what happened afterwards. We get a picture of how Saul responds. Look at what he does. He doesn't want to eat. He doesn't want to eat. What does this tell us? I think it's obvious. He's like, who cares? I'm going to die tomorrow. What does it matter? I'm not going to eat. But then they urge him. They're like, come on, you just got to eat a little something. Put a little something in your stomach. And he just listens to them. Does the text say at all that he listens to God or Samuel? And then he goes off into the night. It's interesting that she kills the fattened calf for him. She prepares for him a feast fit for a king. And yet at the very end, he looks nothing like a king. It's not just the robes. It's not just the shaking with fear. It's how he responds to God. And again, he just leaves. The chapter ends. And spoiler alert, exactly what Samuel said comes true. He dies the next day. Now let me ask you, where do you think Saul went when he died? If you had to put money on it, don't gamble. But where do you think Saul went when he died? You know, C.S. Lewis had some interesting, sometimes wonky things to say about heaven and hell. But one thing he said that was incredibly insightful is that those who go to heaven ultimately are the ones who want to be there. And those who go to hell ultimately are those who want to be there. Listen to this quote. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Now, you could argue about the theology, but he's not talking about God's sovereignty here or God's wrath or God's justice. That's not the point that he's making. He's making a point about the human heart. And don't we see that in Saul? Saul has so many chances to go a different way, but he doesn't want to. This is about the human heart. This is about the rich young ruler. At the end of the day, he didn't actually want eternal life. This is about the rich man and Lazarus. At the end of the day, he didn't want to change. And this is about Saul. He literally hears words from the prophet of God beyond the grave. God is your enemy. You're going to die. And yet what does he do? Does he make things right with God? Does he desperately seek the grace of God? No, he gives up. Hebrews 3, 7, we read it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's about all those guys. And it's about us. Because what have we heard for the past too long? The word of God. We've heard the word. You've heard the word. What will you do? It's not about your neighbor. It's not about your friend at home. It's not about your kids. Right now, it's about you. You've heard the word. What will you do? See, on the surface, this chapter has nothing to do with us. We're not ancient kings. We're not about to fight a war. We didn't even know what mediums were before today. But this chapter actually has everything to do with us because we are people who are created by God. Saul didn't seek God truly. Romans 3.11, no one actually seeks God truly. Saul was told he was going to die. Guess what? Hebrews 9.27, every single person is going to die, and we're going to face judgment. Why? Romans 6.23, the wages, the wages of sin is death. Can you imagine if I said you're going to die, and you just fell on the floor and collapsed and didn't want to eat? Well, guess what? You're going to die. And I'm going to die. The stakes of this text 
are life and death. In fact, more than that, the stakes of this text are heaven and hell. Eternity hangs in the balance. What will you do? And this text ends on kind of a downer, doesn't it? He just runs off into the night. It sounds like Judas just going off into the night. And maybe you feel hopeless. Maybe the thought of death truly terrifies you. Maybe you know you're not right with God. Maybe you messed up a thousand times this week. Maybe you're realizing now for the first time that you have believed in the existence of God, but you don't have a relationship with him. Maybe you don't know what to do. Am I supposed to try harder? What Sign me up. I got to serve. Let me tell you, there was a king who was forsaken by God. who's not Saul. There was another king. And he knew the night before he was about to be brutally killed, that death was coming, and he too fell on the ground. But he never disobeyed. And this king, he didn't deserve death. No, this king was innocent. And the Bible tells us that this king was forsaken, not for his own sins, but for the sins of people like you and me. And he willingly died this death. He walked toward the grave with eyes wide open and in him, death was defeated and the grave was conquered. And his name, I think you know it, is Jesus. But do you know what it means? The Lord is salvation. See, if you believe that, you know it's not about what you do. It's about what he does. So wherever you're at, the application is the same. You got to go to him. You got to go to him. Lay aside anything that keeps you from him. Sell all that you have if you have to. You don't necessarily have to, but put away everything that holds you back. Die to yourself. Take up your cross and find life that can never be taken away. Because what else are we doing? We're all going to die soon anyway. We have eternity to think about. Go to him. And what the Bible says is that for those of us who are weary and heavy laden, he will give us rest. We'll close here. We'll close here. The comments kept pouring in. He had like 1,700 Facebook friends about Dave, right? Dave, you're such a great guy. Dave, I loved how kind you were. Dave, I never told you this, but I always had a crush on you. It was incredible. But then three weeks later, Dave's Facebook was updated again. And it said, hey, guys, it's Dave. I'm still alive, basically. So what happened was, his family decided at the very last minute they couldn't pull the plug. Like, we can't do it. We got to hold on. His brother or something tried to comment and said, actually, we didn't pull the plug yet, but it got buried under all the comments. So if you go back, you actually see he tried to correct it, but it was too late. They had updated the Facebook. Everyone thought Dave was gone. But Dave, you know, a couple weeks later, he woke up from the coma miraculously, and he was back to life. So he's back, and he's fine, and he's reading hundreds of comments that people wrote to him. You know, secret crushes, all of these things. And you'd think that he would be really happy about it, but he said actually he felt super bad because he was like, honestly, I'm not that great. Like these guys are saying such nice things about me. He was so kind. He's like, not really. We weren't even that close. All he could think was these people are wrong. These comments are wrong. They don't know me at all. I'm not a good person. I don't even know who this person is. And it made him feel super guilty. In fact, he said he felt like he had to change his whole life to try to become that Dave that they all thought he was. Now, that's like a one in a trillion occurrence, the same exact situation. Probably won't happen to us. But the truth is, 
And I ask you guys, what do you think people will say? The truth is, it doesn't really matter. Because people, they can't see into our hearts. They don't know deep down who we are. I mean, it might matter a little bit. But only God can see who you really are. You can fake it. You can fool people on purpose or not. We can make it so that people say great things about us when we're gone. But the truth is, and we see this in Saul, even when you die, you're not truly gone. We might pass on from this world, but there's the next. And as surely as you and I will eventually die, sooner or later, you and I will have to reckon with what kind of relationship we have with Almighty God. Billy Graham said, there comes a moment when we all must realize that life is short. And in the end, the only thing that really counts is not how others see us, but how God sees us. So in conclusion, it's time to stop playing. It's time to stop faking or putting on a performance for the people around you. It's time to make your life really count. Your short life, make it really count by pouring yourself into the things that really matter. Living for God, and not anyone else, not even you. Today, you heard his voice. Don't harden your hearts. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. In fact, with your heads bowed, I always think about the Apostle Paul when I study this text because Paul's name was Saul. And I see so many parallels between these two Sauls. Beyond the name, all right, same tribe, both persecuted the anointed one. <clears throat> But Paul was totally different. When he was faced with death, he didn't fall on the floor in terror. Instead, he said to live as Christ and to die as gain. So with that in mind, let's pray. God, we come before you. God, we know what your word says. And we know what the power of Christ is. That if Christ is in us and we are in him, that we can be reconciled to you, that we can have no guilt in this life and no fear in death, that dying could actually be gain. And God, I pray for our church. God, I pray for every person here. I pray for myself. God, I pray that you'd help us to lean into that. God, I pray that we would learn from Saul. And I pray, God, that we would turn to Christ. And God, we know that you don't need anything from us. You don't need grand gestures. God, you want a relationship with us. So God, as sinners, as weak people, we ask for your help. We give our lives to you. We pray, Father, that you would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.